Welcome back to another episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Devin joins me today to discuss all kinds of stuff. We've got some lens announcements, I think. We've got some memory cards. We've got some random stuff. And Devin, what are you putting on your head? I have a crown. I have a crown. Is this a like, uh, Burger King cracker. crown? No, 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 for my cracker. I guess it's a, I didn't know it was a British tradition, but I grew up in a slightly British household, so I always thought it was normal, but apparently it's not normal for American families. A cracker is this small thing that two people pull apart, and there's like a bad joke, a small little a toy, so like laughing toy taffy? and a crown. Yeah, no, 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 there's no food, just but like you pull them apart and it kind of pops. There's a small explosive in there, and then uh, you get a hat and a bad joke and like a tiny, tiny plastic yo-yo. So I've got a crown now. So is it a fire a firework? It, it kind of sounds like a firework, like as, as much as your, uh, you know, your sparklers are considered fireworks. Uh, but if you look it up, yeah, it's it's a, I guess, a British tradition. I grew up with it, so I didn't know it was strictly British until this year, which is kind of funny. I just thought, oh, this is just something families do on Christmas, right? But I what? found out, no, the whole like pulling the crackers apart, uh, that's uh, more of a British thing. I'm only vaguely European, so I have no <laughs> idea what any of these traditions are in my family. Yep. We just barely chopped down a tree and put it up in the living room. <laughs> we, if we barely chopped down a tree. Yeah, well, you know, uh, I'm from Nebraska where trees are scarce. It's called the Great <laughs> Plains for a reason. They have a forest, but it was artificially planted by humans. So go figure that one out. All right, we're not here to talk about no, we trees <laughs> or Christmas specials. We're actually here to cover the random bits and pieces that we find on the internet as Devin and yes. I go through our daily filming lives. Devin, you've been mm-hmm. working pretty hard in the studio. Let's talk about that I for have. a second, man. Miserable hours <laughs> from the sounds of it, like doing sports coverage. Well, Is that what's up? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, okay, to each their own, to each their own. Um uh the the play it's an internet station i don't need to plug them because they don't need me plugging them but um a place called 120 sports and uh i've done like you know tech directing and some stuff like that and uh camera operating and whatnot what i found interesting though is that in the industry the tv industry in general with these studios uh since this studio is still kind of new they've got like normal looking Miller tripods or whatever with uh, little dolly wheels underneath them. And that's how they pot around all the cameras instead of like the really big expensive. If you've seen studios before, they usually have gigantic hydraulically lifted cameras and pods and whatnot. Um, They're just using tripods and some dolly wheels uh, until they move into some new studio and stuff like that. What I find interesting is that just about every studio minus like the up and comers, like your local CBS, Fox and everyone else, they actually use computer controlled camera. Oh platforms. yeah. Yeah. So, so normally there's just a floor director who, you know, can fix microphones or whatever, like kill, hit the kill switch on a robot if it goes crazy. Um, and that's it. There's no longer any camera operators. And even, even for a while too, there used to be camera operators who would use a joystick with a remote control pod. Uh, but that changed as well because now it's just synced with the script. So as the reporter reads the script, the robot knows what's the next move it needs to make and where it needs to focus and everything else. So uh, really fascinating stuff. And whenever I talk with some people about this and how I find the technology interesting and everything else, you know, some people are kind of like, oh, you know, it's like taking jobs and everything else. And this is why, like, it isn't good for us and everything, all that. But in my mind, I'm just thinking, I'm like, yeah, but you're putting the camera in the same spot every single day and you're like hitting the same marks every single day and that's why you mark the floor so it's identical every single day and it looks identical. And I go, 
if that if there is at all repetition in your job, then automation just makes sense. I understand it, it sucks because that's some people's livelihood and that's, you know, 401ks and everything else. The, you know, the industry is shrinking because technology is getting so much better. But for me personally, I'm like, that's automation. Things that won't be automated for a long, long time is being on location, shooting with, uh, you know, a shoulder-mounted camera or something like that, being out in a protest or something like that. That's not going to be automated for a long time. And, <laughs> and neither... Neither will, like, say, a film set because most whenever you're going on location, you're not going to have perfectly smooth floors and, like, things that you can do with robots and everything else. It's like, no, when you go on location for any kind of shooting, uh, you, you're, you have to adapt to the situation that's there, and it's going to be a long way off. I'm not saying it won't happen. I'm saying a long way off until that becomes automated. But, yeah, any repetition in your job anyways should be replaced in some way by computers because uh, if you keep repeating yourself, you're just wasting your time. Last time I was on a big shoot in uh, California, I actually got a chance to tour uh, this production studio that does commercials, but their specialty is actually doing commercial stuff that looks like it was CG, but it's actually like laser cut uh, individual bits and a very awesome like motion track robot control system that moves the robot through the camera through all these different angles mm -hmm. and changes and stuff. And the work is beautiful. Like, changing perspective on like little cut out houses trees and for probably like five years in the mid 2010 range to now there was all those like uh what insurance commercials and like weird car commercials and stuff where it was always that like 2d's going to 3d turn mm -hmm. and those guys were right. behind a, a ton of those and that was a really awesome uh way to do that but talking about the the new studios man I actually helped out at a Fox affiliate in uh, Omaha, Nebraska, years and years ago. And even back then, they had rails for everything, and they only had three yeah. cameras. And they were still uh, electronically controlled. They would have three cameras on the desk, and then they would push a button before they cut to the uh, you know, weather girl or weather guy. And the camera would actually start rolling over to that section as the person like, you know, walked through the set and got there. And then when they were ready, they were like, okay, to you, Susan for the, you know, whatever. Sure, and it, yeah. it was like kind of hilarious because they'd gotten that so well worked out that like you could sit on the floor and watch the person leave the desk, not notice it because they cut in close to someone. And then they cut back to the weather girl that was at the desk just a second ago. Wow. Studio magic, you know? Yeah, well, and I, and I think that um, while obviously all the people whose jobs are connected with that, there's a lot of hate around it. Uh, it's one of those that I'm like, it's kind of inevitable. Uh, any job that's repetitious, I mean, this is, you know, we're talking about video here, but you, you take, uh, you know, making burgers or something like that, there's going to be a point where that repetition is going to be replaced by machines. There's no doubt about it. And um, we, we aren't going to get into the economics of what's going to happen to the labor force when that kind of stuff hits the fan, but... Uh, it's it's something to keep mindful too. Is that uh, not only does this, uh, you know, maybe you should consider maybe other uh, things because things like producing, things like uh, even video cutting, uh, that's all done kind of on a cadence with the way the person talks and where the person's looking and everything else, and that kind of stuff isn't going to be automated for a very long time. So. Uh, if you are looking for a job in the industry, I, in television, I wouldn't necessarily go crazy over being a camera op because there aren't a lot of those jobs available. Though, if you're really into like electronics and robotics and stuff like that, there are a couple of jobs of people who set up and maintain those kind of systems. There's a handful of companies that create them and stuff like that. So 
the, that I find that stuff fascinating. So I, I'm all about it. I'm all about like what? Like where's the main server? How does it talk to them? Like you know, it's a TCP/IP. What is all this stuff? So I didn't know they I, had I actually like script systems going now that would actually move the cameras on the uh, teleprompter. So that's like that's pretty sweet actually. Yeah, yeah, and it's and so like as as a show producer, it's not even like they need some kind of engineer. It's like a show producer. They can just put in, uh, okay, and then when the prompter hits this this section where she says, uh, uh, you know, later on today, we know that we're going to cut to this B-roll. So when we hit later on today, send camera two over to the weather desk and zoom in on the, you know, spot number two. And you tell your weather person, okay, you're going to stand on spot number two. And then without touching anything, when they say that part of the script, the robot just zooms itself over there and focuses. So it's, it's crazy. It's really cool. All right, on that note, I think that's enough ranting. I think it's probably time for the news. Time for the news. All right, Devin and I just kind of scrambled a few things together. We've got some stuff we've purchased. Let's actually start with that because I'm kind of interested in this. Uh, we actually came across this while, uh, well, actually, I, I got to give Devin credit where credit's due. Like, I get a text <laughs> yeah. message. In the middle of the night from Devin that's like, hey, did you see this? And I'm like, well, wait a minute. What is this? And for those of you listening to this, uh, basically, uh, you're familiar with the Wi-Fi uh, wireless audio systems from both. You've got the Rode Link. You've got the Asden, whatever the heck number that is. I can't remember off the top of my head. And then you've got the Audio-Technica System 10. All three of these basically are based around uh, the normal Wi-Fi standard, and they are using sort of system, um, you know, data protection and multi-channel assignment and so on in order to send your audio across the Wi-Fi network from your wireless unit. Now that, and we've talked about that a bunch of different times, but what we haven't talked about as far as the Audio Technica system goes is the price. Uh, these were what about five hundred bucks, Devin? Is that right? Uh, I, I would say I, I've been like four fifty. I, I've been watching them, and I'd say that I probably like a year ago they're around four fifty, and I actually saw them maybe cruising around three fifty, maybe on B and H. I don't know because I don't have like a price history index for uh, uh, B and H's selection, but uh, I want to say that like occasionally I probably saw it for three fifty, and that's when I was like, oh, I need to keep an eye on this. And then you're right, one night it went down to three hundred, and I'm like, oh, three hundred such a good deal, and I didn't pull the trigger on it yet. And a few days went by, and then I was just browsing through, like, I have an Amazon wish list, not of, like, stuff I'm going to buy, but just, like, stuff to look at, stuff to consider and compare, and just, like, you know, kind of a running to-do list of things to check out. And I was scrolling through that list for something else, and then I saw this guy again, and I saw that he was all the way down to 250 on Amazon. So I, I woke up DJ, and I'm like, DJ, you got to check this out, man. This thing's all the way down to 250 I mean... And, I didn't uh, even need this, honestly. Did I didn't it. want it. It wasn't even on my list. And Devin sends me this text. I wake <laughs> up, I look at it, I'm like, dang it, all right, bye. And so we both clicked buy at the same time. We'll both have one of these Audio-Technica System 10 units coming to our house shortly. Now, I'm looking around mm -hmm. online to kind of get a, a comparison for the price. And the road link is probably the closest 400? equivalent. And it, yeah, it looks like it's sitting at... Uh, four hundred dollars right now. It's been four hundred for a couple of months, I think. Yeah, it's been it, pretty. Now I am seeing, and I did notice this right away. There, the first thing up is uh, now this is what twelve? No, this guy's got a good rating. Uh, mm -hmm. two twenty nine for a used model. So that's not actually, which isn't bad. Isn't bad that at is all. Not bad. But uh, two forty nine for a brand new product. That's pretty decent. And as far as wireless mm -hmm. systems go in general, man, that's like pushing up against the. Uh, 
that Airlink system, I think uh, that was a UHF system, those little tiny ones from Simons, I believe, the same people that make yeah. like the parent company for Zoom and so on. And uh, that's a really good deal. Now, both of us are going to be testing this out and dinking around with it. I might even mm-hmm. try to get my hands on a road link to compare, but your concern and my concern both is Wi-Fi in a crowded Wi-Fi market. What do you think? Do you think this has enough uh, redundancy or, you know, dual antenna, all the other things that they're throwing in there to uh, make this Sure. Safe? So, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting because this really is different technology. And the pros, uh, for better or worse, I haven't necessarily seen Embrace too much. I've seen a few independent run-and-gun guys uh, use road, but no one who works um, necessarily for big networks or uh, professionally and that kind of stuff because they've spent thousands on their uh, UHD uh, equipment or whatever UHF VHS before that UHF and VHF uh, before that they've spent tons of money. They're invested. They they have these frequencies they like, and they know that most people don't have these frequencies. So all that stuff packed away. But um, I have heard good things about the road. But there's very little data I find on the road. Uh, one of the reasons why I was eyeing this Audio-Technica system is because uh, they're saying they have three levels of diversity uh, being um, like space frequency um, as well as antennas. So it, it has two antennas that you can see on the receiver. And from what I read, it seems like the transmitter also has two. And most decent wireless systems will have two antennas, so it can play whichever one is a little bit better, which you don't think is much when they're an inch apart, but that can make all the difference when somebody's walking in front or a piece of metal moves by just at the wrong angle and stuff like that. At the same time, these have frequency diversities, which only the super high-end systems before 2.4 gigahertz, only the super high-end systems would have where they'd be watching... Uh, another frequency, and if there was too much interference, they jump over to another frequency. Uh, this, of course, has that as well. And then on top of that, it has time diversity, which means it actually sends the same packet of audio data at two separate times, which sounds bizarre, but the reason for it is, let's say there's a spike because something like a microwave or something like that uh, jolts, and you lose you know, a millisecond of audio data. Well, a millisecond later, that same audio data is coming, and the trans- the receiver can patch it together and seamlessly make it so that it all sounds like there's no dropout. So with all that kind of put into it, I'm like, I think these guys really thought about it and they worked really hard. I love that the output on the receiver seems to be both uh, can be balanced and unbalanced uh, to give a few different options as well. Of course, their microphone cable is a balanced cable, which means too, I think it means, you know, you could incorporate it into other microphone systems and stuff like that pretty easily. So I'm pretty excited for it, but as soon as I get it, like all these 2.4 gigahertz system, I want to slam it with as much 2.4 gigahertz as I can because from what I read, it should be just about one channel and it should only take up about one channel. It'll jump around the channels, but I mean, 2.4 gigahertz, you can use as much or as little as you want. Most Wi-Fi routers use one channel unless you set them for a slightly wider band for higher speed and then they're kind of using one and a half to two channels. So... It'll be interesting to see when I go into an area that's completely full of Wi-Fi. I'm planning to go to like apartment buildings, all kinds of places where people just set their routers to automatic and just say 100% power and they just blow out everyone that they can to see how well this works next to Wi-Fi routers and microwaves and everything else. I've heard good things, but I haven't seen anyone torture these things yet. So that's what I'm excited to do.
Now, the first thing I want to find actually when I get this into my hands is a balance to unbalance adapter for it. Because as you probably know and have made fun of me for <laughs> multiple times, I have lots of 3.5 millimeter lav mics laying around the mm-hmm. studio. Um, looking now, while we're on this, I, I figure it might be a good time to address like kind of what we're currently using for wireless systems. And Devin and I both have the standard standby Sennheiser G2 G3 units that are, are very nice and solid. I had to recently get rid of a few of my my uh, older lav packs because they were in that 600 megahertz band. And if you're not right. familiar with that, the FCC is giving that away uh, here at the beginning of 2016, and those will be off limits and, and paired off to you know uh, fire departments and so on. So what I've also switched to is this guy right here, and this is an Asden uh, 330 UPR unit, and they're okay. Asden doesn't make the highest quality lav kits, especially in this price range. I believe this kit will set you back about $700. But the cool thing about this is actually that it provides for uh, two different systems. So you can have a single receiver on your camera and two lav packs out there uh, sending audio to it. So not quite the same diversity as is available in this Wi-Fi unit. But the reason I threw down for the Wi-Fi is because that is like a spare when I'm out in, you know, the middle of nowhere. If I need a fourth pack, I mean, this handles two. I've got my uh, two sets of Sennheiser units that I throw into each camera bag, and then now I can toss in one Wi-Fi unit with that. I don't actually, I don't even know, man. I, I don't even need this. <laughs> like, I might hey, just give this to Devin might, after I'm done playing around I with might, it. Yeah, yeah, I might buy it off of you. Um, depending on how well this thing performs and everything, um, I really would like a system that handles frequencies on its own. That's one advantage. All these 2.4 gigahertz systems, because they have to be so aggressive about changing frequencies in order to make sure you get reliable performance um, across all the brands, whether it's like an Asden XD or your Rode Filmmaker kit, uh, they, they need to constantly be hunting and searching and making sure that they're on the cleanest band because this is such a noisy spectrum compared to things where uh, when we go into the field and we use... Um, UHF on something, I can scan the entire frequency band that that receiver handles and see, ah, eh, there's kind of a bubble over here. But for the most part, there's always lots of dead air because uh, d- depending on, you know, different places, security systems and everything else, there might be something that eats into the uh, the lower end 600, 500 megahertz that I'm using. Uh, but for the most part, there's always clean signals. And in 2.4, there's never clean signals. But one advantage is these low-cost systems will automatically hunt frequencies. Most UHF systems, unless you're paying top dollar, will not find the best frequency for you unless you like go in there and say, okay, find me a frequency. You have nah, to physically tell it. I got to disagree, man. The G2 series did not have that feature, but the G3 series does and sure's higher. Does it end. auto-hop, though? Yeah, does it, it, automatically it does change? have a setting. Um, okay. it, you do lock it into like 10 or 12 frequencies. Like It does a clear channel check when you fire it up, and then okay. whatever you fire it up at and have it run its scan, those clear channels that it finds are the ones that it bounces between, but that still gives you... you I know, haven't... All right. I haven't used the G3, so I don't know, but for me, uh, that that's always been kind of more on the expensive brand if you're going with... Um, now I can't think of the brands uh, that aren't Sennheiser. Well, um, sure has their model. Sony's... Not sure. Uh, it's... Uh, it's yeah, they, sure. they only do the... <laughs> Look at you, I like, can't. throwing sure down... <laughs> No, 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 no. Sure, especially for stage stuff. Sure has got some great wireless systems, but 
Uh, no, I'm trying to think. They, I think it starts with an L. They only make like wireless audio for broadcast purposes. They don't. Oh do yeah, consumer great stuff. They're like uh, you're talking like two to five grand to buy a set, yeah. and they're in those square yeah. modules. Uh, yeah, Lexicon maybe or Lexicon. There, yeah, yeah, stuff like Lexicon. that. So, so those guys, you pay even more if you want one that's going to automatically hunt frequencies for you. Those uh, are usually... dead solid though, man. <laughs> I was yeah. I was on a reality shoot like last year or the year before, and they had like that rack mount pack that just mm-hmm. has like seven of those and they just handed these out like candy to everybody and like they were able to handle their own frequency they were able to do all kinds of crazy stuff yeah and i i was like i need one of those how much do they cost and the guy's like oh uh this is like thirty thousand dollars worth of wireless (laughs) audio like you you can't afford this yeah so so i'm kind of interested though because i've been using a g2 i didn't realize the g3s also uh did a little bit of hunting for you uh, you know, cost-effective packs that can kind of manage their own frequencies. I've been a fan, even though I haven't used it yet, I've been really interested in the um, the Sennheiser AVX system because half the time I just want something that works. I don't really care about dialing in. It's just one of those, if it's a job where I've got a separate recording box and a boom mic, then no, I'm going to handle everything myself. But if it's a job where it's like, oh, we need you to go grab this interview, just grab your camera and your gear and come over here, then it's like, I don't want to truck around the extra gear. I know I'm just going to plug it straight into the camera, So I'll, and I want something like an AVX that just manages itself. So to each their own, that's like a whole autofocus argument, I feel like, but to each their own. Anyways, this is a great deal, and make sure you buy the one that comes with the lavalier, because strangely enough, if you buy just the body pack that doesn't have a lav, uh, you'll spend like an extra $180 on on the packs. So. Yeah, and we just did a check on that. Uh, it does look like the Amazon deal has passed, but B&H still has it for $260, so there's a link there in the show notes for it. Keep an eye out. Maybe use Camel, Camel, Camel. Now, moving on, because we spent way too much oh, time talking about that one item, oddly enough. Yeah, we did. Um, I've actually got a purchase here that I'm kind of interested in. Uh, these micro SD cards have gone through the roof in terms of size, and this is a 200 gig SanDisk Ultra Extreme, you know, whatever SanDisk labeling they throw on it, uh, micro SD card. So we're talking 200 gig here. And when I first looked at this, I was like, ah, yeah, you know, this is probably going to be slow as molasses. 200 is a weird number, and this is just a strange item. But for $99, that's 200 gigs worth of storage. And we're talking about, and hold on, I've got some speed tests here. We're talking about read Real write speeds. Speed that well actually I, I will admit that i haven't run my own yet on more than one computer so my speed tests are hitting a little bit higher than this so i actually went to amazon and grabbed one of the reviewers links and uh, theirs is lower than mine so i figured that's the best case scenario but they're getting and this is with black magic's uh, speed write test which i i use uh uh crap i don't even know what's the name of the freaking one with like the asian lady on the top you know it's like anime and all that what? oh what man the heck? i you know must be talking about the website because i don't know of any disc speed test that has that description no i um, i totally messed up and i uh, downloaded eight, there's the, atto there's a crystal benchmark yes crystal um, benchmark thank you okay. if you accidentally get the skinned version of crystal benchmark which <laughs> I have for some reason. There is a, a scantily clad anime girl at the top of it. That's anyway, funny. the point I'm getting at here is uh, for $99, you're getting 200 gigs in a micro SD format. It's 88 megs read and 50 ish megs write. That's good enough to keep up with like a GoPro. That's good enough to keep up with that uh, uh, Z1 camera that I'm using and pretty much anything mm-hmm. else. 
And this is something I've been I've tested all my devices, and that's why I haven't done more speed tests myself. Is I've been putting this into multiple uh, devices that say they're only limit or that they're limited to 128 gigs on your your micro SD card port, and it's been showing up as 200 well 188 or whatever you know the the subtraction number is for a 200 gig drive. But it's been working in all of my devices. And so I started looking into the specs, and it turns out, and Devin's posting something right here. What do you What do you got, man? I'm just I'm showing that 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 card is giving you the same performance from the uh you the U3 cards that Sandisk make for 64 gigs. They're gold Extreme Plus cards. Ah, uh, okay. Which is supposed to be for Blackmagic. I mean, you're getting maybe I'm getting maybe like you know six or seven megabit more on my right. Uh, but uh, that's that's this exact card here which it's not going to focus but it's the black and gold one the extreme version. Yeah. So for your for 200 gigs for 100 bucks you're getting the same speed as like the extreme version which we know SSDs are supposed to speed up as you add more space but this is still impressive. Well, micro SSDs they're using like uh NAND flash and stuff so it's a little bit different than what you get out of like the addressing bus schemes that they're using in like sure. SSDs but yeah, super sweet, a really $99 for 200 gigs. That's not bad in the scheme of things. And if you're tired of your GoPro only providing you with about an hour of footage, then maybe it's time to upgrade your memory card. Now, moving on down the line, we've got a few things here, and we're I'm kind of just randomly skipping through. Devin, this very first thing in the show notes, the 100 to 400 millimeter yes. lens. T- tell yes. me a little bit more about this guy. Uh, you know, it's great that you throw it towards me because I don't even have that much to say about it, even though I'm the one who added it. Um <laughs> Well, there's there's been a little bit of debate like this versus, you know, the classic Panasonic 1 to 300. You can see some pictures there that uh, show you the different sizes. Uh, something to keep in mind, though, is that the 100 to 300, uh, I believe, is an F4 at the full focal length. And this one, you're getting, you know, 30% more reach or something like that, going all the way to 400. But that means you'll have to sacrifice and you'll be stuck with F6.3, which is extremely slow. Um, and so I think that kind of locks down how you can use it but you're still getting you know power iso uh in a macro mode as well so this as far as i know i've just seen a few shots things look good on it but i no one's done any real tests as far as i've seen or any kind of pixel peeping or anything like that uh but just for fun i've been trying to look at some telephoto options i don't have a bunch of long pieces of canon glass i can put on my micro four-thirds camera like dj over there uh and so i entertain the thought of well what if i needed some extra reach what kind of you know native micro four-thirds lens might i go for compared to spending three or four grand on a canon lens and adapting it well now i have that uh what is it a 75 to 150 and then i have the 1.4 x multiplier on there so that's what does that work out to it's I think the, uh, man, I'm it's a telescope. Drunk. Yeah, you have a telescope. I mean, it does pretty good. Like, I think, <laughs> can, no, can I think you it's... like fill the moon with that. That's kind of like, that's my basis for how far a telephoto reaches is if like, if you zoom in all the way with your 2X or 4X converter, does the telephone fill or does the moon fill the frame? That's, I, no, you can't fill the frame with uh, that. Uh, you, you, the moon would have to be really, really big. I, d- <laughs> um, and honestly, if you ever try to shoot the moon with uh, a telephoto lens, unless you have some kind of crazy thing that I don't know about, you're probably not going to fill that. You, you do attach it to like a, a telescope of some kind, and that is your magnification. Uh, just a heads up for those of you ever trying to do it. There's are actual 
actual adapters for that. I've, I, I've gotten I've gotten close. I've got like the moon like filling one fourth of the frame, but that was uh, a Nikon lens that I think I pumped all the way out to. It was like, like punch a, in a on your micro four thirds, and then yeah, yeah, I did that too. It was like a a, a two or two fifty Nikon lens with a two x booster. And then on top of shooting on a 2x crop, I also did that um, that uh, double crop, that digital zoom, video <laughs> zoom inside of the GH3. And and in doing all that, did I it got look good? a kind of. It wasn't bad. It wasn't like it was bright enough that once I adjusted the exposure for the moon, um, it actually looked okay. It was still a little soft though, because I'm going through a ton of converters and everything else. It was still soft and had a little bit more noise. Because I think I probably shot it at like 1600 ISO, but it was just fun to do. I was just like, eh, how far can I get to the moon? You know, I got all these lenses. What, what am I going to do with them? So Yeah, what, maybe you could do like some kind of um, crop into 4K and so on all the way up until you... Yeah, that's true. If, if you're shooting 4K, you could do a pretty nice crop on it too. Yeah. That would, that would like look pretty decent. So these neither one of these actually really super interests me. Uh, you know, F6.3, not really my bag per se right. but uh it, it it feels slow and i'm sure that that's they're like well to have a zoom of this range if we want to get it down to like at least 5.6 uh they'd probably have to add like another half a pound onto this lens yeah and as far as i see it already looks pretty beefy and pretty heavy so it's almost one of those that i'm like ah, i'm not exactly sure why this is coming out then if you have a 100 or 300 i almost feel like it would make more sense to maybe do like a 200 to 400 at something like f4 or 5.6 and keep the profile the weight down where you want it for a micro four thirds camera because even mine too you're attaching this to a micro four thirds camera and if while we you know sit here and talk about gh3 gh4s and stuff like that um you know a lot of micro four thirds cameras are tiny they're they they're not saying that they couldn't hold the weight with proper you know properly built in mounts and everything else I, i'm not saying any of them have crappy quality but i'm just saying like the whole point of Micro Four Thirds is kind of to shrink down the kit, if if that's you know what you're interested in, is shrink down the kit. And so this adds a huge, bulky, heavy lens that you're like, oh my gosh, it's almost like my Canon lens. It's nice at least that they included IS though, because oh, that's absolutely. a huge issue at that at that focal length. Um, I'm yeah. holding up right now, and for the audio listeners, I'll describe it. This is the 40 to 150 millimeter f2.8 Olympus zoom lens, and it's a nice lens. I like it okay, but uh, it is super heavy and bulky as far as Micro Four Thirds is concerned. Now, this in no way uh, is anywhere close to the size of my 7200 f2.8 for full-frame body, and in that regard, it's still very nice to use, but it is still like top-heavy for mm-hmm. a GH4 body, and then if you're trying to yeah. shoot stills in any kind of low light where you're getting below maybe like 100 hundred or so uh, it's it's a little bit rough to like get mm-hmm. a stable image without is and there is no is in this lens um and even yeah. i got to test uh this lens uh, like four or five months ago with uh, an olympus body with built-in is and and it worked pretty well no no oh, really? it didn't um so i i was at a trade show and they they had one there so i grabbed this out of my bag and took it over and, and popped it on and i was like okay give me give me a little bit of time with this i want to play with it for just a second and they're like okay yeah and so i popped this on and i used the is on the sensor and it's rough at at this focal length it's fine when you get to you know 25 which is a 50 equivalent or you know in that range sure. under 100 but you start going to like 
uh, what this is a 300 equivalent, uh, you go up to that range and like it doesn't do much at all. And do you, it, I don't know. Do you, do you think it's because of the physics of the situation of what's happening with yeah. the light, or do you think that? It's kind of just bad programming. They don't know how to properly stabilize when it's it, the camera knows it's at that focal length, but they don't know how to properly stabilize that focal length. Well, no, the issue is actually that with the movement of uh, a smaller focal length, like a, a 25 millimeter lens, for example, it's very easy to keep up with the movement because it's not as drastic. But when mm -hmm. you go to 150, which is a 300 millimeter equivalent, now even the tiniest movement, which is uh, fairly easy to compensate for with the sensor moving around is much more drastic because of the distance that the lens is reaching. As, so, as opposed to optical image stabilization, which exactly. would just react right on time because it's not, it's, it's just a spinning piece of glass. And so just physics are going to take over and make it react opposite of what you're doing. Yeah. yeah. The gyroscopic okay. action that happens in like your regular traditional IS in the lens is a lot better at stabilizing longer focal lengths than what you get out of the sensor moving itself. A computer-based system, basically, because it's a bunch of accelerometers that are pushing around a lens to try to keep up. And so inherently, there's going to be a little bit of delay and a little bit of uh Well, not even tuning. that. There's just not enough uh, distance that they can float the sensor around to completely yeah. compensate for a 300-millimeter focal length. And when you add the 1.4x to that, it, this gets even further reach, you know? So then now right. you're making it even worse. It's... It's just not as practical. So something to keep in mind, that image stabilization system is oft awesome at like portrait and below to wide angle. But well, you start going to like, folk, uh, you know, the longer lens reach and you're just going to have trouble. Am I not mistaken that um, uh, there is coming out a lens that is a 300 millimeter F4 that has image stabilization? Oh, my God. Look at this guy transition. So we have this in the lineup, and it's kind of been talked about often on by us and by others, but no one's really seen it in the wild. This is the new or soon to be announced uh, Olympus, what is it, a 400 millimeter, 300 millimeter uh Man, I should have looked at this again because I haven't looked at it in a while. Uh, the Olympus 300mm f4 lens with internal image stabilization. Uh, this gives you all of the reach that's about a 600mm equivalent on a micro four thirds body and internal lens capable image stabilization. Of course, built pro like all of the rest of Olympus's lenses, Devin. Any wording on price? Uh, I'm guessing three grand. Yeah. Yeah, that would be where I would put this guy. Um, maybe, I bet, uh, you know, initial announcement will be like 2999 and then, you know, we'll see it drop off to like 2000 and some change. But this is going to be a fairly expensive monster trucker. You're not going to get this guy for cheap, especially with Olympus, you know, just hitting the market with this. And, you know, what else do you have to compete with this? Yeah, that's true. There, I mean, I mean the I can't Micro Four Thirds telephoto market is pretty scarce. Yeah, and, you know, that's a lot of reach. Uh, you know, if even if it's less expensive, if you compare this to something like uh, the Canon 600mm, you know, that's like a, like a $10,000 lens, right? Yeah. So, you know, now you have this guy. I mean, obviously, you're not going to get the same exact performance out of it, but you're getting a lot of the aspects of that and the want, need, slash, like, I want to have this for sports or whatever. And your $3,000 or $2,000 doesn't seem that unreasonable. 
No, no, for sure. I mean, like, it, it does seem to have sticker shock when you sit in the Micro Four Thirds market for so long because it looks like the most expensive Micro Four Thirds object there is. Uh, but you're right. You compare this over to your uh, full frame line, and, uh, you know, the cost is more than double for the same thing from Canon or Nikon. Now, moving on, we've got what, one more thing to cover, two more things to cover here. Let's talk about this ZQ Plus multicam shooting. Devin, this is something yeah. you're completely interested in. I'm never shooting. interested in. Yeah. At all. And no one else, probably, but just me. But um, it's just interesting for people who have, I believe, uh, don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure that I uh, was reading that the. Uh, some people with older versions of the 7Q slash 7Q Plus can upgrade to this feature, but instead of recording 4K, uh, you can actually record four 1080p streams as well as a fifth stream that's either going to be quad view for reference or a live switch. And so uh, while the, the use case of this, I think we talked about this too a few uh, podcasts ago, but this is the first time where it's kind of in action. You can see some videos of somebody actually using it with some cameras. Um, this is... Uh, there's there's going to be very few that really want this feature, but those people who want this, uh, this is absolutely crazy. For the price you spend and everything else, being able to uh, have uh, what a lot of people refer to as ISO recordings, isolated recordings of each stream, as well as having something mixed, even if it's just kind of a reference, even if it's just like a director sitting in the back kind of oh, let's do this shot and this shot and this shot, just to reference for the editor so he gets an idea of when a cut should take place or when what camera should be live. Um, it's going to be super useful for those people. Lots of people who are on the road, who are doing multicam shoots, sometimes like interview shoots that need to be turned around quickly. And that's kind of the area that this exists. It's kind of in broadcast or anywhere that needs to be turned around quickly. And you're not going to spend a week editing it. Because if you're going to spend a week editing it, then you're going to just watch it one time and do a live cut anyways in Premiere and then work from there and trim it down. But uh, in this case... Uh, you know, you can be out uh, doing a multicam shoot for an interview or something like that, and then uh, be doing your cuts or whatever, and then ship that straight up through uh, a 4G modem or something like that over to the station or stream it out as well as in having that high quality recording of what you originally cut together the day of. So there's, like I said, this isn't like, uh, there aren't gonna be a ton of people who are scrambling for this feature, but I think it's obvious that uh, they're listening to their audience that enough people have asked for this feature that they're going to absolutely love having such a small, tight, inexpensive package for doing live cutting right then and there, and or as well as having references to having a, a quad reference for an editor, for someone to make notes or something like that, a producer or something down the line. So I'm kind of fascinated by it because uh, it's just it's it's weird. No one's done this before, like a tiny little package that's actually cutting together HD SDI footage. Uh, this is just something that I haven't seen anywhere else. Normally, if you wanted to do this, just to give you perspective on like the pricing difference and everything else, the cheapest way to do this would be one with like Blackmagic gear. So you'd get some kind of like 1080p Blackmagic switcher. Yeah, but that's not portable. That's something you're going to have to like power up and plug in, right? Uh, absolutely. That's something that you'll have to put in a rack and you'll have to worry about powering that rack, whether if you're on location using a Jenny or borrowing from a system's power, but uh, a switcher. And then on top of that switcher, you're going to need... Uh, five bays of recording for your 1080p, one for each camera, and then as well as for the output of the switcher. Uh, and then you'll need to bring along a laptop or other computer interface for switching because uh, the switcher doesn't have anything built in. The black mag Most switchers don't have like a built-in interface. So you'll need to bring a computer, laptop, or something else 
uh, or even like the black magic board to actually physically do the switching. Um, and then afterwards, like compiling all those hard drives or whatever together onto like one hard drive and deliver it to somebody or something like that. Uh, it's just, it's a nightmare. So you compare all that cost and power and everything else all for like, oh, we just want to go to this thing and do a quick live switch to this now. This almost puts like live switching in the hands of running gun people. I could see this being really popular for uh, like amateur MMA events where they're usually doing multi-camera shooting of that, being able to switch and then having that go live to like, you know, iMag, your big uh, TVs on the wall, as well as then having that recording later to upload or stream out to a fight. Um, you know, you're not going to get graphics or anything else fancy like that, but still like you're getting a lot of power in such a tiny package. And for me, I just, I'm, I'm nerding out because I just think it's super neat. I don't even have a use for it. I just think it's really neat. Now, are you switching by touchscreen then? Is that how you, you transition? That, yeah, that's what it looks like. Uh, not something that I'm in love with, but uh, you know, that's, it's not like you can, as far as I see, hook up any kind of controller to it or keyboard or anything like that. So I, I love mechanical buttons. I have a loud, noisy mechanical keyboard. Uh, I'm I'm very into that tactile feedback, especially in a live switching situation. What and do they do for like audio the- management on this? You know, sorry to interrupt you, but I'm now I'm oh, like no. curious. Like, how do you <laughs> manage the audio stream? Because it seems like if you were switching, you would still sort of want like, especially depending on the situation, you'd want continuity of audio across multiple switching modes, especially if like you had a reporter in the field, you know, talking about a game or something like that. Uh, How would you manage that? Is there a way to completely bond the audio all the way through? Uh, Yeah, I think that it has, as far as I've read, it seems to have um, uh, an audio menu where you can select if you're just going to take audio from one source or if you're going to take it from all. I haven't seen anything that represents mixing, so I feel like your mixing may kind of have to be done at the camera level. Uh, like I'm saying, though, in a lot of these cases, I feel like where most people are going to use it is they're going to mute. It's it's all SDI embed. It or looks HDMI like it embed. has an internal interconnect audio patch bay for up to 12 channels of routing. So you can. it does look like you can stream your audio through to whatever SDI output that you're using. Right. That is kind of sexy. And I, most, cases, most cases, what I'm seeing is that... It, Uh, What I imagine is that you're probably going to mute all your uh, audio embeds that are coming into it um, or just not patch them. And then you're going to have one camera that's actually providing audio that's going to be hooked up to the mics or running off of the sound mixer guy. And then that's going to be the only two tracks that are actually live for the entire time. Because it's not, once again, like it's doing a lot, but this isn't going to necessarily replace an entire switcher system and a soundboard and everything else. I don't know. I'm reading through this now. And uh, thanks to newsshooter.com for posting this. Uh, It does look like they're they're working on a uh, remote control for this that would give you basic rudimentary like crossfades and so on inside of the unit itself so i mean on the touchscreen interface no no a separate controller that goes along with the touchscreen so you'd plug it into the touchscreen and you'd have your normal joystick controller and your buttons for transition and your patch bay uh information so you could punch audio from one channel to another Uh, i'd have to see it to believe it yeah that i I, (laughs) how you would make that small right even the smallest consoles i've seen in person were something that would easily occupy like the space of three keyboards uh you have to really yeah you really have to cram things down to fit that many controls into such a tiny space. But, but then, I'm touchscreen. I'm excited and interested because uh, it, it, it's like Odyssey's like, you know, hey, we know we aren't the only ones in the video recorder market. Let's see if we can kill it by adding some features. 
so seeing this much interest in taking their video recording systems and going in other directions, I love uh, because when people come to compare like video recorders, most of the time, there isn't much except for how good is the screen? What format does it record to? Uh, and like, what kind of inputs does it take? And like, usually that's it because they're, they, they all have like vector scopes. They all have histograms and everything else that you come to expect from a decent monitor. So it's kind of interesting to see a monitor company, uh, or uh, somebody who's been mostly focused on monitors lately to like be like, yeah, we're going to do some video switching and give you some other options and stuff like that and accessories. Now, if you got all the monies for an Odyssey, go out and buy one because uh, <laughs> I think the base price is around uh, two grand and then it goes up from there. Uh, now, right. I wanted to talk about this a little bit before we end the show. Devin and I, before the show, were kind of arguing back and forth. And Devin picked up a leveling plate for a really low-priced tripod that he just picked up as well as a head. So, Devin, why don't you show that really quick? What, my story? All right, I'll tell you my story. Um, so, there, me, DJ, there was a big sale, and I pointed out to DJ, too. Um, I forget the company. Uh, the sale, obviously, is already over. Uh, they're, they're getting rid of a bunch of stock. And so people are probably familiar with this uh, fluid head. This is sometimes called Fancier. This one's called Weifang. Um, goes by many names. They all just resell the same thing, and it's an okay fluid head. I was looking for a light tripod to be for my secondary camera uh, for when I'm doing a two-camera shoot, and I'm not actually going to man the camera do a whole lot with it. Um, but I still like having a fluid head because if I have a second cameraman, I like him to be able to follow the action smoothly and make that work. And then at the same time, there were some carbon fiber sticks that were 50 bucks. Uh, and they don't get too high, but they're like photography-based carbon fiber sticks with a little bit of squishies here, and they have three different levels to set for each leg, so eh, it's not bad. The problem I had is that these kinds of sticks don't have a ball head. Part of it's for the size. I mean, it's super narrow profile. You can see that that's, uh, you know, it's it's not like, because I've got a Manfrotto old-school like 503 head with the sticks that came with that, and that thing's super heavy, and it's all aluminum, and it's great, and it's super steady, but I wanted, you know, a light thing for my camera, too. So I ended up buying uh, a leveler, and how that works is that right on top of your you know, photography sticks or whatever, you attach this little, uh, what's basically a tiny ball head in between your actual tripod head and the sticks. And so that allows you to uh, unscrew it, and you can level your head however you want, and then tighten it up, and then it's level. DJ, on the other hand, he goes, Oh, well, I just change, you know, my sticks. I just I just mess with my sticks until I get the shot level. And yeah, you can do that. I'm just usually moving a little faster than that and I'm like, I need to twist one knob, make it level and and then I'm done. I can't sit here and like mess with my tripod legs for five minutes setting up a shot. Now, Devin and I, we in you know <laughs> off show like uh, I've work I'm working on a lot of projects, so I every once in a while I'll send Devin a link of some of the stuff that I'm working on. And Devin's comment and complaint is always that hey, you know everything you shoot is dutched and it's it's sort all of, Dutch, it's and, all tilted. And people are gonna think that you've got a broken tripod leg. And he's telling me, like, he always says this, but I, that's how I shoot. And it, like, part of it's out of, um, I, I like to say it's a style choice, but it really, <laughs> really, like, when he was asking me about this, I'm like, honestly, Devin, when I pan, if I pan crooked, I don't really give a darn. I just, like, pretend like it means something <laughs> in the shoot. And so if I can, you know, if there's some character that I feel is more shifty than the other character, I will pan towards him at a crooked angle upwards or downwards, depending on how I think it should happen. And that way it's, like, showing some 
kind of meeting. In, in reality, I, I just do it because I'm lazy. <laughs> like I'll go out. I don't have a hundred millimeter, uh, you know, a cup on the bottom of my tripod to, to take care of leveling. I I'll move my legs around if I think I need to, but in general, like I'm, I've got one right here and I actually, we were talking about this before the show. I mean, this is my normal setup. I've got like four of these and it's a Manfrotto, uh, 503 HDV head and sticks and that's it. You know, there's no level, uh, ball leveling system or anything like that. And when I do need to like worry about being level, you know, either I'll adjust the sticks or I have this cheapo guy. And most of the time, if I'm worried about being level, I'm not panning. So then I don't really worry about it. And, you know, I find myself doing this more and more where I just go straight from a static shot to a handheld to a static shot to a handheld. And then like I'll wander about or I'll use a monopod and then back to a static shot again. So even then, like I I don't find that if I'm panning, I'm really concerned with the camera being that level. Is that weird? I mean, Devin, you can criticize me now. Here's your chance. Oh, man, it, it. It totally depends on the use case scenario. Uh, in your case, if you're doing uh, videos that are fun, that you know you're trying to put some energy into, or if you're doing something thematic, or if I'm just trying elements, to crank out feature length films as fast as DJ's legs can run, um, then then yeah, it's it's it, then it's part of the aesthetic. It's part of how the DP likes his shot set up and stuff like that. Um, I mean, for me though, it's the reason why I'm always worried about being level and I'm worried about being fast is because uh, my my time is kind of expensive. I'm not I'm not the most expensive videographer in my area, but my my time is worth something. And a lot of the time, I they, they don't give me enough time to set things up and do things necessarily the way I want. So I'm always worried about speed. I'm always worried about how efficient I am with my time. And um, now I guess the other question I have for you is how often do you storyboard? Because that in itself uh, saves me a ton of, of floating time. Uh, almost never. I mean, oh. most most of the projects I'm working on, uh, there's not enough forethought put into storyboard. Uh, rarely is there even a script. A lot of the time it's done off the fly. If it is, and it, it, it's it depends on the length of the project. If it's like an eight page script, I'll usually like to storyboard a lot of it and really think about it and how it, it's going to generally be cut and how it's going to feel before I go out there. If it's like, I don't know, like a 30-page script that's kind of like a featurette kind of a thing and everything else, I'm not going to put that much time into it because most of the quality of the production is not going to come out of single shots. It's going to become out of the collection of shots and how they're edited together and uh, necess- and what's said and what's shown and how it's shown. So in those cases, I worry more just about a forethought of that and about getting everything and then kind of worrying about it in post, where if it's a smaller project, then it's like I'll kind of take my time and I'm like I have very little screen time. I need to make sure that each shot is effectively telling the story. So it depends. I mean, if I was getting paid a ton of money, then sure, for a 30-page short, I would sit there and spend all the time in the world working on it. But it's just kind of like... Cost-wise, I got to choose how I spend my time and how to best bring that to life at the end of the whole production cycle. So keeping that in mind on the shorts, I've got a little bit more time because I know I'm going to have extra time on set and everything else. If I'm trying to crank out like 10, 12 pages in one day, I go, "Eh, it's more about coverage. It's more about we need to make sure we got everything together. We can't go over. So I don't know. I've... uh... 
I just, uh, and I don't say I just, I, I worked on a project um, last year. It was like a 40-minute epic music video vignette for uh, somebody. I'm not going to talk about the project specifically because I, I don't know what the heck is going on with that. But anyway, I shot it for him. And with the storyboards, it was so easy to walk up, get complete approval for the entire thing ahead of time, hand him the storyboards. The guy's like, this is exactly what I want. You have seen my vision, blah, blah, blah. I'm real <laughs> excited. And you know what? When I got on set, it was gorgeous. Like you just, all right, here's the cameras. Shoot this shot. Next shot. Next shot. Next shot. Next shot. I want a little more coverage of this because I think this might be a little bit tricky. I'm going to get a couple of shots. And half the time, like I was shooting something while I sent my assistant over to set up for the next shot. And because I had a storyboard, they could get the camera basically the way I wanted it before I even walked over and grabbed that. And then they grabbed the camera I was shooting on, took that to the next location, and I, it went so smooth. We were able to to knock out. 15, 15 pages in a day. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's insane. Like that's that is insane. That is that, insane. that is just like going from morning to night without having to worry about it. And then like you finish the whole thing in like four weekends. It was so comfortable to work on. The part of uh, part of two, and it, it some of this comes down to shooting style. Um, what storyboard allows for for me in terms of that kind of pre production and forethought is that it saves of the day it saves any guessing on how subjects relate to the camera uh but cinematography is so much more in terms of like maybe on the storyboard i already have a focal length selected how the subjects are staggered and maybe what they're doing how they're positioned against a table or something like that but a storyboard uh does nothing to tell me how i'm gonna light it and it does nothing to tell me what the background is going to look like and it does nothing to say anything atmospheric or something fog or something like that so uh what storyboard does is it answers half of the questions so then when i get on set uh i can worry just about those other questions being how are you going to light this and like what's you know so with all that being considered it's like without the storyboard then i'm spending my time worrying about structuring uh, just the basics. Where does the subject go? How? What length am I going to shoot this at? Um, you know, what aperture am I going to shoot this at? All those kind of questions. So that's why pre-production and storyboarding is so important. Uh, it just kind of comes down to, for me, uh, necessarily how long the project is, how much time do I have to work on it, and you know, also a, a thing of payment. Now, what about a shot list? Do you at least roll in with a shot list? Oh for yeah, you? Okay. every time. Because I mean. I don't know. I, and I know I've kind of gotten factory about a lot of my productions where it's like, I don't even, it's, I, I care about the art. I like filming, but at the same time, I fall into this category where like, there's certain things I really want to spend time on and get just right. And then there's other stuff that like, I don't really care about. And so, uh, and Devin's seen some of the, the, my feature length stuff. And it's like, you can tell in the dialogue shots that I didn't give a damn about filming them. Like poor lighting, quick setup, like good audio, but I, I, I just sped through it and got, you know, minimum flare, got it done. And then you'll look at like these action scenes and I've got like a great gore. I've got, you know, good camera angles, people running around doing all that coverage and then you cut back to some more dialogue and it's kind of like so-so to iffy. And I, I mean, I'll call myself out on it. Like it's not the highest quality work, but when you're working on an extremely small budget, I mean, you do what yeah. you can. And 
Uh, no one, a lot of times I'm on a set, especially for feature length films where people are getting paid very little. Uh, it's cold out, it's miserable and I'm not making that much money either. And so we are just in it to finish it. Ed Wood style. Uh, I, you know, that's probably don't do what I do. <laughs> Ed Wood style. Yes. But it's a thing. So uh, that's kind of the difference between Devin and I, and that all spun off of this whole, uh, uh, tripod, uh, leveling unit. Can I can I rant about something real quick? Because you mentioned up shot listing, and I've just gotten really excited over something that I didn't know was a thing yet. Uh, for the longest time, I've been drooling over uh, a program called ShotLister because, unfortunately, I am not an iPhone guy. And that has a lot to do with my workflow and the way I do things. But I do know that just about every filmmaking app is made for iPhones because most filmmakers i guess have iphones i don't know that for sure but the the market (laughs) seems to suggest that anyways so like uh, two months ago i checked shotlister again and understand i've been checking them probably every six months because they're like uh we probably won't do android and then after a while yeah android's coming and uh and then like a couple months ago i saw that oh they got windows and like windows phone and still no android and then just now I went to go check because we were talking about shot listing and there's this application I've wanted to use for shot listing since forever. And finally I go to the site and they have a link to it on the Android page. And apparently they just put it on there December 22nd. So Merry Christmas. I'm excited. Yeah. Merry Christmas. Right. So I'm excited to download that right away tonight and start testing that out because, um, I I'm like, I've always wanted a decent shot listing app that, uh, has, you know, abilities to export and import and sync and do all that kind of stuff. (laughs) So it might be worth checking out. Right now it's free in the Android Marketplace, so go check it out. One other thing I'll mention, guys, um, if you have a friend or family member that's an artist, uh, Manga Studio is a super easy way to generate very basic storyboards. And if you're willing to sit down with them for a couple hours an evening or something in that nature, you can a lot of times kick out a small script in a couple of days, as long as you don't care about how artful your storyboards are. Now, if you're charging your client for those storyboards, uh, then you want them to be a little bit more uh, fantastic uh, than what you would get out of that. But uh, just something to keep in mind. And a lot of times storyboards don't have to be uh, super amazing, well-drawn-out things. They can simply be, you know, two circles representing heads standing one in front of the the other or, you know, the placement of a car or, you know, where you think the shot would look good. If you sort of plan these things out, you've thought about what you're going to shoot and it will definitely speed you up regardless of uh, your skill level or where you're at in your filmmaking ability. Uh, Devin, you got anything to add to that as he takes a drink of soda and I throw this at him? <laughs> as you cut to me? Um, no, uh, yeah, it's... It, storyboards are really great and they don't need to be fantastic. Uh, an app that I got a long time ago, uh, that I've always used is, um, I think they call it like shot designer or something. Uh, I've been more because I've lacked a whole lot of artistic talent, uh, in the, uh, pen to paper category. I've always really just been into diagrams and making like, um, yeah, it's called shot designer. Um, and uh, Shot Designer, it, it's, it does the same thing that it w- I would do with a pen and paper. It's a top-down view of this is where I want my camera, this is where I want the characters and the props, and maybe this is how I want the camera to move. Uh, because I've been more concerned about how is the camera going to move and where is everyone positioned uh, than necessarily exactly painting out how the shot's going to look. Uh, just because 
a top-down diagram of how I'm going to shoot it is, in my case, more helpful for me. Everyone's a little different, but that's more helpful for me than usually um, a storyboard. I, I mean, I have worked with a few storyboard guides before, and it's always brilliant, and it's always great if you can ever swing it uh, to have that because then you already know. And I love to. The few times I work with storyboards, I even take the storyboards, I dub in some audio, and I even cut it together so I can almost see what a cut looks like before we've even shot anything. So I love all of that kind of stuff. Um, I've just never had really the talent to do it, so I spend most of my time making diagrams of how I'm going to shoot it uh, because then I'll, like, instead of, like, seeing a frame of two people talking and an arrow being like, the camera's going to dolly this way. For me, a top-down view that's like, he's going to sit here, he's going to sit here, and the camera's going to be on dolly and move this way makes more sense when I'm setting up my shots. So. I think I want to say uh, last time I paid for storyboards, it was dirt cheap, man. It was like 30 bucks a page or less. It, it was really affordable. So, I mean... Not, well, you know what, too? I think, I think for the most part... Maybe it's just because speaking, artists are fighting against each other. <laughs> The the tools the tools have gotten cheaper too. Uh, what was I watching? I was watching I think like maybe I don't think it was Project Greenlight. I was watching something, and the guy who was storyboarding literally just had like a Samsung tablet. Yeah, and then they would talk, and he'd sit there on his Samsung tablet, and bam, it was like all digital. And so I mean, that's to me that's cool. If if I wish I was better with pencil and paper. Uh, but if I was a storyboard artist, that's totally what I would do is just like get like a, a Android or, you know, iPad, whatever, and draw on that and digitally create all the storyboards. That way there's no scanning or anything like that. If you want to update it or change it, you just yeah. go to that spot and you change it. So well, uh, and, that's uh, super cool. The guy I work with a lot of times is from Wetworks Productions. And, you know, a lot of times I'll just describe to him and he'll go through the scenes with him. And he's mm -hmm. got his iPad there and he's sitting there like kind of just roughly drawing everything out. And what happens is he's like, well, why don't you do this? And I'm like, that's good. OK, use it. And then like he'll be like, you know, as an artist, I feel that you should shoot it like this. And like he just changes things whether I ask him to or not. And when and, he's done, I'm like, that's fine. That looks good. That's, and that's something to keep in mind, too, is that especially if they've been doing storyboarding for a while, uh, they start to have an innate like feeling of uh of what works and what doesn't. Cause I mean, part of it is that that's their job, but they become another creative individual to work on the visual part of your story with. And so it's always smart to at least recognize the uh, suggestions that they may give you because uh, just like all of filmmaking is a team-based effort. Uh, you can get some really great ideas and make the project even better. Yeah. And if you just let someone like me run everything, it'll just be crapping out as many videos as possible, as fast as possible. And everything will be slanted. Everything will be crooked. That is my thing. All right. On that note, Devin, where can people find you? Because I think it's about uh, time to wrap up the show. Yes, it is about time to wrap up. Very good. <laughs> Very on point because we're like an hour one into this. Uh, they can find me on Twitter at DevoCut. And of course, guys, you can find this podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, and anywhere podcasts are distributed. Also, be sure to write a review on iTunes because that helps us out in the rankings. Uh, watch the video content if you want. And of course, as always, thanks for watching. And we'll see you next time on another episode of DSLR Film Noob. Bye.